0: Looking at all of chapter 9 and half of chapter 10 as well as we go on, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those wonderful words, for this wonderful book uh, which unpacks your amazing plan, Uh, your plan that was devised before anything was made and has been worked out in all the events of everything that has been made. Father, we marvel at this plan of yours and we marvel that you have given us a place and a part in it, Uh, that you have not given up on your plan or your people, but rather that you have remained committed to us and you have remained committed at great price. We ask that you would help us to understand, to appreciate your great love for us better from our time together in your word this morning, that we might love you better and uh, live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be thinking uh, a lot about something that I suspect we would all agree is important, and yet that often escapes our attention. It's one of those things that's kind of most of the time out of sight and therefore most of the time out of mind. What I'm talking about is blood. <laughs> I saw some people <laughs> squirm when I said that. Most, some of you don't want to think about But I'm not going to show you pictures or anything like that. It's okay. I'm not going to make you look at it or anything. But I'm sure you do agree uh, even those of us who might be squeamish, that blood is important, uh, that it's actually a great gift. Uh, your body, the average body at least, has approximately five litres of blood pumping around it, uh, pumped, of course, by the heart, that great uh, muscle that, uh, through which um, we, uh, the lifeblood pumps through our veins, uh, of course, uh, some people may have more than five litres and, and some people less. depends a lot on, on things like uh, the size of your body. Uh, if you are pregnant, uh, you, it's possible your blood count would go up up to 50%. Uh, it's, it's that variable. Uh, God uh, created us in a way that means we have the blood that we need, which is wonderful, isn't it? Um. And without that blood, we, we really do need it because without that blood and without it being healthy and functioning well, we would simply die. And yet, as I mentioned, it is easy to take our blood for granted, isn't it? We don't tend to go through most days thinking, gee, grateful for my blood today. Um, <laughs> it's just there and it does its thing. But hopefully, after today, uh, there is some blood that you'll never take for granted again. Now, chapter 9, which was read for us, begins in those first five verses with a description of the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple of the Old Testament. Uh, it, It came before the Old Testament because it was given at a time before Israel entered the land. It was given at a time when they were nomads, when they had... No land of their own, and uh, they travelled around in the desert, and they carried this very large and heavy uh, tent, tabernacle, tent of meeting, uh, with them. Now it was called the tent of meeting because God, in spite of the sin of his people, was determined to still dwell among his people uh, and to still have a way of his people to provide a way of his people to uh, meet with him. Uh, albeit in a mediated uh, sort of way. And the layout of this temple that's there in the first five verses uh, helps us to understand what it says there in verse 1, the regulations for worship. See that? Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant, that is the old covenant, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. In other words, worship of God for the people of Israel couldn't happen just any old how they weren't free to make up what worship looked like Uh, there were there were all sorts of rules that governed given by God that governed uh, their worship of him Uh, and those rules are related to the elements that made up the tabernacle and its design so read in verse 2 a tabernacle was set up I had had visions of setting up a mini tabernacle here in front of us this morning but didn't get there so you'll just have to use your imagination. Uh, A tabernacle was set up in its first room, now don't be confused there, the tabernacle was a larger uh, tent that had a very big courtyard uh, that any clean, uh, ceremonially clean Israelite, Israelite was allowed to enter into. The first room that is mentioned here is within that, It's a much smaller space and it's reserved for the priests. So we see there, verse 2, in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread and this was called the holy place. Uh, There was a curtain at the entrance to that room. Uh, But inside that room was another curtain. Behind the second curtain, verse 3, was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark, you're getting the picture, we're going inside and we're going inside and then we're going inside again. And inside the Ark, um, uh, the Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant, that is the Ten Commandments as we call them. And above the Ark, so on the cover, the lid, were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, sometimes called the mercy seat. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. I love little verses like that. It's, kind of, it's, it's like he's kind of almost realised that he was getting carried away and he goes, oh, hang on a second, uh, back on track. And yet it's not that those things aren't important for what he's saying. They are. And the main thing that we're to notice is uh, that there were barriers there were restrictions uh, on some of these areas and they were made primarily by the curtains, the two curtains that separated the courtyard from the holy place and the holy place from the most holy place. And they were very clear borders and symbols to the people that God was not easily approached. And the reason that he was not easily approached was because of their sin in relation to God's holiness. Notice that there's the holy place and the most holy place. And sin is something that uh, separates people from a holy God. Uh, When I picture the tabernacle, I I think a little bit of, do you ever go into into a big city, uh, into uh, one of those impressive tall office type buildings and you walk into the foyer and anybody is allowed to go into the foyer of those buildings. They look imposing, and so even that itself might keep you on the outside. But you can go through those doors. They're often those spinny doors. You know, they're, they're good fun. Uh, you go into one of those, those foyers and soaring ceilings and impressive spaces. But you get this distinct impression once you're in there that you're not allowed to go any further. There's, there's some sort of concierge desk at the front. There's often a security guard or two. Uh, at various points around the place. And there are people who belong in those spaces, but they're marked out because they're carrying their little swipe cards uh, that they need in order to get into the holy places uh, of that building, that is, the places that are set apart only for those people. Uh, So they're they're the only ones that, when they hop in the lift, can actually press a button and the light will stay on and they, they get to go up to wherever they work in their floor. They're like the priest's. Um, but there's, there's one flaw you know, that even their swipe cards won't get them into, no matter how hard they press it, uh, and that's where the CEO or whoever he might be, uh, or she might be, uh, is only allowed. Now, that's probably not exactly how it works, but you get the analogy, right? and, and that's what it's like. That's what it was like. It was, it was not possible. It was not possible. It was not allowed. It was not allowed. Uh, for any ordinary Israelite, though they might be one of the chosen people of God, to enter themselves into his presence. But uh, as the writer sort of pulls himself up there at the end of the paragraph, uh, at the end of verse 5, he does that so that he might focus on the element, the aspect of uh, the old covenant that he's uh, focusing on in this part, in this passage. And that is on the rules concerning sacrifices. On the rules concerning sacrifices. Chapter 9, verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests, but only the priests, entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So so this was a daily kind of work of the priests. They were allowed into the holy place to carry on their ministry, to do the daily uh, uh, parts, the daily rituals uh, of their work. But the writer is introducing a contrast here uh, with what happens in the most holy place. Verse 7, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. Only once a year, only one man and only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. And you would have noticed the key words there, both as Vera read and as I read, only, only, never. Very exclusive kinds of words, aren't they? Never without blood. Now, it might be easy for us here today to sit here and listen to that description and think, why? It all seems a bit unnecessary, perhaps, a bit, bit harsh. What's with all these restrictions and limitations and requirements? We may even think that, get an impression of God that he's a very demanding sort of God, when in fact even under that system, he was providing something for the people. Uh, We may think that God is being harsh, when in fact, he's being merciful. We may think that he's being hard on the people, or making things hard for the people, when in fact, he's making things, something impossible, possible for the people. Now I think the reason that we might get the wrong impression about what God is like through all of this is because we don't really understand or appreciate the seriousness of our sin. And neither do we fully understand the holiness, the otherness, the perfection, the greatness and majesty and glory of God himself. We Think of him far too much in relation to ourselves. That, that he's just some kind of bigger and better version of us. But that's not the case at all. And what the writer is doing here is helping us to understand Clearing our vision, both about ourselves and our sin, and about God and his holiness. Eventually, so that we will appreciate the goodness of the gospel and the betterness of Jesus. And we 'll get there now in chapter ten, verse three, uh, the writer says that the old covenant sacrifices, and especially the Day of Atonement, were an annual reminder of sins, a little bit like Remembrance Day uh, on Friday, not not of sins, but an annual reminder, an annual opportunity to remember. Chapter ten, verse three. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. But they're not just a reminder that we sin. I think the people understood that. It's not like they forgot it for 364 days a year, got to the Day of atonement, and oh, that's right, I must have sinned at some point in the last year. No, it's not just that it's a reminder that they sinned, but rather of God's verdict on sin see the sacrifices clearly portray God's verdict on sin that sin warrants death. Now again, you might hear that and think, "Really? But why?" And that is a natural question to ask: Why does sin deserve death? Is it just because God says? Well, in part, what God says goes. God is God after all, and what he determines is what is good and right and true. So yes, at one level, God says that the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat from the fruit of the tree of good and evil, that first sin, you will die. So so yes, because God has decreed, that is why... Sin uh, deserves death. And yet there's more to it than that. I think also uh, sin deserves death because death is the natural consequence of sin. By which I mean sin is a turning away from God, the giver of life. And when we make that decision, we cut ourselves off. It's not him cutting us, us off, but we cut ourselves off when we turn away from him and all the good gifts that come from him. But I think, thirdly, as well as those reasons, I think that sin deserves death because sin is far more grievous than we understand. It is a great wrong. It is the great wrong. Now, that's not normally how I think about my own sin. I think of my sin as small things, ordinary. Nothing much to see here, folks. It's easily enough explained in my mind. In fact, almost reasonable in the circumstances, don't you think? I wonder if that might be how you approach your sin as well, at least some of the time, if that's how you get by. When it comes to your sin, I think perhaps we all do that to some extent. And so the idea that our sin warrants death seems, well, more than a little extreme. But here's the thing God knows us better than we know ourselves, He sees our heart, He sees our spiritual core very clearly. And what he sees there is that it's all gone wrong. That, that sin by nature is that we have turned our backs on God. We have turned away from God. We, we don't want to live in reference to him. And not only have we turned away from God, but we're on a, we're on a hill. We, our hearts are not only turned away, but inclined away from God. And we can't resist the pull of our sin, as it drags us further and further away from God. And the result is that our sin is actually an expression of true evil. Jesus called people children of the devil. Uh, Our our sin is an expression of being anti-God, of being... In spiritual rebellion, spiritual adulterers, this is all biblical language, even of treason, treason against the world's ruler, of moral chaos that produces further moral chaos. It's grim, isn't it? But that's what it is. And there's no benefit that comes from sugarcoating it. In fact, there's only benefit from truly understanding and confessing and owning it. God's verdict is that our sin warrants our death. But the old covenant sacrifices were not only a reminder of God's verdict on sin, they were also a reminder of his mercy towards sinners. And that is so important for us to understand. That though death is what was deserved, it is not what God wanted for them. In fact, what he wanted was something far better, far more than what was deserved. What he wanted was to be their God, to be restored to them and they to him. What he wanted, in fact, as the tabernacle itself declared, was to dwell among his people. Just as he had way back in the beginning, so he was determined to one day again. And the Old Testament sacrifices were part of enabling that along the way in process. And so God was willing to make another way possible to address the problem caused by sin. And God's way was to accept a substitute. So rather than cutting the people off fully and finally and forever, rather than handing down the judgment and seeing that judgment uh, done in the death of the people, he chose to accept a substitute. A substitute under the old covenant of lesser value to die in their place. Now, note that in order to convey mercy, the sacrifice had to be less than what was owed. For it to be merciful, it had, you know, the the human life had a value and God was merciful in not demanding like for like, but in accepting a sacrifice of lesser value. Yet, the sacrifice still had to be both valuable and representative. Because if it wasn't valuable... Then it would have minimized their understanding of their sin and its seriousness. And if it wasn't representative in some way, then it wouldn't have been clear that it was a substitute. And what made the sacrifice representative was its blood. It was a life, it was a life that was given, it was the life blood that was shed. And you can understand how that conveyed the meaning. Both of the necessity of the sacrifice, but also of the mercy of God. One precious life given for another. But there was a problem. And that was that a lesser sacrifice could only achieve a superficial result. And the passage says that repeatedly, So in chapter 9, verse 9, from about halfway through the verse, we read that uh, the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Down in verse 13, Uh, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially clean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Chapter 10, verse 1, second half of the verse, speaking about the law. Uh, For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. And chapter 10, verse 11 Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. See, there is a limitation under the old covenant to what those sacrifices, though helpful and useful, actually achieve. They can only achieve an outward washing and not an inner cleansing. But the passage also says repeatedly that those sacrifices were only ever a temporary arrangement. God had a bigger plan. It wasn't plan A and plan B. It was plan 1.0 and plan 2.0. It was always there. It was always planned. Uh, And that this first covenant would be temporary. So, for example, in chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit... uh, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies, there's that word from last week for, or the week before, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better, and there's that word again, better sacrifices than these. And over in chapter 10, verse 1 again, the law is only a shadow, another familiar word from Hebrews, a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And those familiar words, the words copy and shadow, indicate something prior, don't they? Prior in the sense of there must be something more real, something that comes before, not, not temporally before, but in priority. To these things. The real thing comes first in order to cast the shadow. The real thing comes first in order for there to be a copy made of it. So what was the reality? Well the whole time God had something better than these sacrifices in store. As we come to expect the writer has been describing the old covenant to declare the goodness of the new covenant in comparison and contrast. Now, we have to remember that it's not a case of Old Covenant bad, New Covenant good. Hopefully, we've already seen that the Old Covenant was a merciful concession for the people of God to enable ongoing relationship. The Old Covenant was good, but the New Covenant is better. It's it's not that it was a case of law and then grace, the old covenant was full of grace but the new covenant, grace upon grace. In the new covenant, grace, the magnitude of grace is just blown out of all proportion. The volume is turned up to 11 and God rocks out. Now there are several important differences between the old covenant sacrifices and the new covenant sacrifice and even in that Hopefully you've heard one difference. Sacrifices, sacrifice. Uh, And they tend to be introduced in the passage by the word but. So for example, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation, But when Christ, isn't that a beautiful phrase? But when Christ came. The blood of old covenant sacrifices, well, they only uh, enabled entry to an earthly copy, didn't they? But that was all representative of a greater reality. By his own blood, we read. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. By his own blood, Christ entered the true most holy place into the actual presence of God. And he did that to achieve our eternal redemption. Also in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with... Sorry, the copies purified with these sacrifices but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence Christ died and shed his blood that he so that he could take that blood as the entry key to into the most holy place in heaven And stand there and minister there for us. His blood was the key that unlocked the door and enabled actual satisfaction for sin and actual atonement and reconciliation with God, as it said in verse 12, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And that word eternal features a lot in the passage. And it's significant. Chapter 9, verse 15 For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christ's sacrifice, you see, goes beyond mercy. Mercy is simply not handing down the judgment that is deserved. It goes well beyond that to lavish grace upon sinners. People who deserve death instead get not just life but eternal life and the inheritance of heaven. That's absurd. And only possible because of Jesus, because the true Son of God died in our place, that we might take his place and receive what belongs to him, his inheritance. Before the creation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Spirit sat down around a table, poetic license here, and they drew up the will of Jesus Christ. They planned what would happen through the death of the Son. They planned who would get what when Jesus died as a sacrifice for sins and for sinners. And in it, he listed those who put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins as equal beneficiaries of all that belong to Christ to inherit his kingdom and his glory. And of course, as is the case in any will, and as it says there in chapter 9 from verse 16, it only came into effect at the death of of the one for whom it was made, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a gracious God we have to love us as he has. Of course, the other significance of the word eternal is that it is permanent. The work of Christ is a permanent work. It is a once-for-all work. So we read in chapter 9, verse 25, that he didn't enter to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, because otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12... Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. That's how it was. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down because his work was finished. He sat down at the right hand of God. Unlike the old covenant, Jesus' sacrifice was not again and again. It was once for all. Because it was effective, and so he sat down. But perhaps the biggest difference is if all that wasn't enough, the biggest difference between the old covenant sacrifices and the New covenant sacrifice is who makes that sacrifice. See, under the New covenant is God himself who makes the sacrifice instead of the people. He makes it on our behalf. God offers up his spotless lamb. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The father sacrifices his perfect son. And importantly, the son is perfectly willing to make that sacrifice. So in chapter nine, verse 26, uh, second half of the verse, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages, to do, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And chapter 10, verses 5 and 7, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Perfect, obedient, willing sacrifice. The effect of all these better things is that the sacrifice of Jesus got the job done. By Christ's blood, the curtains are torn and thrown away. And we have full and perfect access not into an earthly tabernacle that is only a copy and shadow, but into the most holy place. Even right now, did you know, even right now, by the blood of Christ, we enter the most holy place in heaven because the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to earn that entry for us. And so if you have put your trust in Jesus to pay for your sin and purchase your forgiveness, then you have been restored in two wonderful ways. Did you notice uh, the way this passage talks about the conscience? It talks about how the old covenant sacrifices could never cleanse the conscience, could never get rid of that feeling of guilt. The first way that the new covenant sacrifice of Christ restores us is that it restores us, in a sense to ourselves, that is it makes us whole. That, that guilt is gone, that shame is gone because sin has been truly finally once and for all paid for, not, in, not gone because we're minimising anything but gone because we are appreciating the success of the work of Christ. He really has done it there is no more guilt or shame or burden to carry for you. And if you trust in Christ, then that is one of the things that he has achieved. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Live the free life that he has won for you, a life free of guilt and a guilty conscience. Grateful to him for what he has achieved. But also, of course, Christ has restored us to himself and to one another. Did you notice uh, in, uh, I've lost the verse because I was looking at it in my, I didn't note it down. It's so that we may serve the living God. What verse is that, somebody? 914. 9.14. Thank you. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. We have been fully restored to God. In fact, that word serve means to be a priest, to be a minister. And that's what Christ has won for us. We may all now have full access to God, fully restored to him through the blood of Christ. We have gained access to God that no sinner could possibly have without that blood. Christ's one for all sacrifice has removed every barrier which is great news and cleansed us for a purpose, and that is to serve him, to continue the work that Christ has done, to be priests, to be priests who represent God to the world, to those who don't know him, and to encourage one another to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of of our faith. That is the purpose for which he has won us, Let's not lose sight of it, but make the most of the lives that he has won for us in service of others. And finally, I want to make a suggestion. I'm not sure if it's possible for you because there's all sorts of restrictions about this, I've found. I've never given blood. I've never been a blood donor. Kind of always intended to, but never gotten round to it. I'm going to give it a crack. You can hold me accountable. I'm going to go and give blood. And when I do, (laughs) I'm going to spend that hour praising God that Christ gave his blood for me. I'm hoping that that just that simple act might help me to appreciate how precious blood can be. I'm sure the half a litre that I give up in that transaction will have a value for somebody else. But what I really want to know better is the value of the five leaders that Christ shared for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus Christ. We understand from the Old Testament sacrifices those that really quite gruelling and uh, confronting practice and yet necessary practice and merciful practice that blood is necessary, that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so, Father, we simply humbly thank you that the blood of Christ was shed in our place. Help us to trust him and trust that his blood has been sufficient, that it has been the adequate, satisfactory, once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses us through and through, that provides complete and sure forgiveness and that is one for us full access into your presence and guarantees that that access will never be denied, never be revoked. And that we come before you as your children, knowing that you love us and will always love us and will always have the best in store for us. Father, thank you for giving us all this through the blood of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Mm